Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Emily Horgan and we're missing Joe Redfern today but sending uh, her our love. But we are here with Michael Shields, the producer of Bing and the CEO of Akamar. So you're really welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. So Bing is a huge, um, it's a huge series in the UK. Um, I'm talking on a personal level as I'm sitting here with my flop toy, which I've already uh, produced um, to say, you know, I, I, I have a kid who's been, a, who's been a massive fan of the series. It's been going, it's turning 10 next year. How do you feel about that? It's such a big milestone. Uh, really great about that. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's the real goal is to get beyond that tricky year four, year five stage where you, you continue to grow and expand. And we've thankfully we've done that. I, I completely I completely hear you on that. And I love that honesty because I think within kids media and the world of franchise so often with, with brands you hear, you know, it, it's really hard news for people to swallow when they when they understand that it need, it's, it's a tricky year four, year five. It's not a tricky year one, year two. And that's when you're able to kind of have a little bit more of um, confidence in your brand. You know who your audience are. You know they're going to come back for you. So that's really, really good context from the get-go. Um, I mean, in the early days, were you planning for 10 years? I mean, like what was, what was, what was the strategy? What was the strategy in those? Or can you remember? Uh, I can remember. I mean, the, the early years, there were five of us on the development team, including some of our colleagues in Brown Bag Films. And between us, I think we'd produced 45, 50 different children's projects over our careers. And so the more we developed Bing, the more, the more deeply we got into the subject, the more we realized that we really had something precious. And so we did have a, a mission to, to, to do our damnedest to set it up as an evergreen. Um, I think in the first in the early years, it's your skills and experience that gets something developed and produced and made and, and gets broadcasters and platforms to support you. But in the out years, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, it's actually the audience that, that makes that happen. And so we were very thoughtful about attending to the needs of the audience from, from the beginning. Uh, and with some of our partnerships, Fisher-Price, HarperCollins in particular, our first meeting, and Janine Murta, who was then the leader of HarperCollins Children's Book, she said, what's your goal? And I said, I think our goal is that beyond year five, people are saying, no, what are we doing with Bing this year? So it was a, it was an intentional uh, goal. And and. And how did, did how did that feedback from the audience? Did you kind of have to course correct at all in those first couple of seasons in terms of your vision for the show, and then and then having to adjust in terms of how that was being received by the audience? And kind of how did that work at the start? I think a lot of that happened, Andy, in the early development phase of the project. <clears throat> we did an initial pilot. Uh, which was was quite good, but it wasn't special. It didn't it didn't sing. And then we refined that. We did a second pilot. You know, eighteen months in between these two events. And then um, we took that and we showed it to our friends at Nickelodeon. And actually, Debbie McDonald was in the room, and she just blurted it out. She said, "Flop needs to speak." <laughs> oh no. <laughs> 
flop in the original books. Ted's original books were really insightful, gorgeous little books, but it wasn't clear whether flop was a real character, a toy, a figment of Bing's imagination. And so we then went deeply into that and that coincided with one of the team members' sisters was training as a uh, a Montessori teacher, actually, which was a, a stroke of, of luck. And we went very deeply into Maria Montessori. And Flop as a character, as he became an incarnate, embodied character, basically channels Maria Montessori's genius about what it takes to nurture a young child skillfully. So he's honest He's present. He's not stuck on his phone. Uh, he's got a sort of, yeah, he's calm, very calm. Uh, he's also joyfully, you know, he's authentic. He, he, he's not slumming it with the kids when he's, when he's hanging out with them. He's having a good time on his own. And so um, we did that work. That took five years plus. And at that time, we also, because we were so committed to the project, we put some of our own resources into researching with 600 children in the UK, 600 children in America. And that taught us quite a lot. So that was at pilot stage before we'd actually started to produce full episodes. As a result of that, we slowed down the pace. We simplified some of the language. We got really clear about a simple uh, naturalistic sound picture. Um, so some of the feedback from the audience came before we'd actually shown it to the audience as a fully fledged project. And by the time we did start creating episodes, we'd we'd all spent an awful lot of time uh, working it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it like it really shows as well because it's like you said. The, to me, the pitch of Bing, I can't I can't imagine what it was like in the day. But summing it up as somebody who's a fan of the show. It, it is strange when you're trying to describe it to other people. It's like, there's these kids, they live in this nice little town with these people who are kind of their caregivers, but they're smaller and they're kind of knitted and they look a bit different. And um, yeah, they all just have fun every day on like a very everyday basis. It's kind of like people start kind of scratching their heads when, you know, it comes to the, the caregiver pitch, but it just works so well. And like you say, I mean, Flop is ultimate parenting goals. You know, I think he's he's a great he's been a great example to me over the years about how to keep cool and how to keep connected and all that kind of stuff. So, um, all that little bit, all the little bit. It's of very interesting. The, the the stature and the the I mean, the original books had Big and Flop, and then from that we we thought, well, who will the archetypal friends be in the life of this little boy? So his best friend, girl, Sula, his best friend, boy, Pando, the older, more powerful cousin, Coco, the younger, less powerful cousin, uh, Charlie. And then there wasn't a mummy and daddy in the original concept, and we were being faithful to the original book. So we we developed that in good faith. That, that That's just where it started from. Having post-rationalized it now, 10 years in, the fact that there isn't a mummy or daddy there, interestingly, allows it, 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 it. It's an obstacle in some ways because there are some stories, for example, that Peppa tells brilliantly or Bluey tells brilliantly that yeah. we can't tell. But think of Muppet Babies. Yeah. You know, the grown ups were always just these. <laughs> Nana. <laughs> yeah. With Bing, um, it allows us to make it extremely child centric because that's basically where the narrative is. And that's. Being as a central protagonist is about his issues and his point of view. Yeah, and accessible to any caregiving situation that's not just parents, you know? Absolutely um, right, yeah. 
we talk about grown-ups because it's usually it could be a sister or an auntie or a or a, a nanny or a you know a babysitter or a grandma uh, and also many families are not you know chocolate box mum and dad and two kids there's loads of ways of loving children yeah absolutely absolutely and it's been such a journey since then. I mean, like I know being like being his household name in the UK came up on CBBC or CBBS. Um, I know in Italy it's huge as well. I mean, how has it been? Kind of like exp- like expansion. Have you found that the that the kind of story travelled? Um, we we were very thoughtful about uh, about about Bing as a global proposition from the beginning. And I think uh, if you think about it, you know, before children go to school, before they hit five, they're at home and the developmental milestones of young children are, children don't all develop at the same stage and the same rate. But if you take the first five years of their life, they all kind of experience the same developmental milestones, whether they're Japanese or Italian or British or American or wherever they're from. So we wrote it in a way uh, that we really dug deeply into uh, a universal set of, nar- an authentic, dramatised set of narratives, but for young children, no matter what culture they were in. From a production design point of view, our, our friends at Brown Bag Films were absolutely fantastic and really took up the challenge of, you know, if you, Bing has Japanese pagoda bridges, it has lights that could have come from the Paris metro it's got railings that come from Victoriana in Britain. San Francisco it's got vibes at certain stages, I'd say. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, it's the kitchen, the bedroom, the back garden, the corner shop, the park. I mean, that really is the woods, the Howley Woods. Yeah. Those could be, you know, in a big city. They could be in a rural location. They could be in many cultures. So we, we did work hard to try and make it as accessible as possible, uh, as widely as possible. So, yeah. And and how much did you touched upon the Montessori connection there? How much did you kind of feed in from the start uh, expert advice in terms of cognitive development and how that was kind of bedded into the format of the show? The first uh, the first production of Bing had, I think, all in all, we dealt with twenty three external writers. We had five internal members of our writing team. We had two American specialist educational experts. We had two British educational experts. And two of them, Natasha Crandall in the US and Brian Nish in the UK are still working with us. And we also had a speech and language professor uh, helping us with grammatical structures, growth of language, mispronunciations. Uh, to, and one of the one of the things actually that Kay Benbow in particular at BBC was very courageous about was accepting that we we needed to make them speak to a tiny extent like three year old children. So so there's there's a homeopathic level of mispronunciations in there. As soon as <laughs> or Amma models it correctly, yeah. Uh, so there was a, a you know it. it there was there was really really significant input from a, a broad church of really talented people with a lot of expertise. And and how did that balance out with the writing and the creative and the storytelling elements? Um, 
how did that balance with that expert advice in terms of the cognitive development? Did you find that those mesh together? Did they kind of inspire each other or was there times where it was actually a bit of a challenge? We we kind of blundered our way through in the early stages. I think it took us a year and a half to create five scripts that we were happy with. Uh, Lucy Murphy had a very pivotal role in leading that writing process as we got into production um, with the rest of us as team writers. What we ended up doing, the early stage scripts were a bit like every other kids show. And we thought, where's the best writing coming from in the world? And we looked around and the best writing was coming from HBO at that point. It was the West Wing, it was the Wire, it was the Stephen Bochco dramas, and they were all written in a team writing process. So we said, all right, we're going to do a team writing process. And so we said, it's a preschool show, what are you doing? But actually there's an interesting aspect to that, which is that it allowed us to be quite structured about it. So there's a, there's a paragraph idea, there's beat sheet one, beat sheet two, beat sheet three, sometimes beat sheet four. What we worked out was if we solve the dramatic challenges of the show at beat sheet stage and make sure there's a beginning, middle and end, the stakes are high enough, there is a bang moment where the ears go down and there's something <laughs> real stakes. And then there is, there's a reaction to that and there's a repair and and it feels authentic. Then we start draft one, draft two, draft three, then a table read. By the time you get into uh, voice directing, one of my main roles in the production is I'm the voice director of the original 104 episodes. You're still writing it. You know, you might have Flop saying, um, uh, I know Bing, you know, you, you did want to win the game. But actually, when you get into the studio and you've got Mark or David in front of you, it might just be that Bing saying, oh, I chose the game. And Bing and Flop just might go, hmm. And that's enough. <laughs> the writing process can keep going. Your question was, how did we find the tension sometimes between bringing in our educationalists and taking their input? We got to a stage where the end of the beat seat stage, we'd share it. And Brian in particular would come in with feedback, often brilliant feedback at the beginning about, oh, no, you can't do this. This just won't work with the audience. Mm. You, can't you can't infer things. You need to show and tell. You need yeah. to show tell on, on show not tell on the screen and then we bring them in again at not final draft stage but before the table read and they'd break they'd bring in some expertise about language and dialogue when we were at that stage then we table read them and, and so that that was a, a, a creative process where there was a good set of conversations about how to tell these stories and keep them keep them on the straight and narrow in terms of child developments you know standards we also had the BBC with script editors, the BBC feeding in at these similar stages. So you get you get accustomed, I think, to a very open, robust set of conversations about that, uh, and it just becomes part of the culture of the production. Eventually. But it also seems like people kind of are are fulfilling specific roles within that, and it's not just here's my vomit on my vomit feedback on anything and everything it's very targeted which I think is a smart way and it's how it works best um you know when people have a specific remit and they're able to go this and then you know and you can you can appreciate their expertise for what it is and, and that's why you're, you have them as part of the I think we blundered through it the beginning you know when you're doing things for the first time they're always yeah. hard take longer you make lots of mistakes and then by the time you're on script 12 you're like oh this is the right stage to bring this in 
Yeah. Too late. And so I think, you know, we've now written 104 of them. We're actually writing another 26 now. And there's far less heat in the room. You know, in the yeah. early stages, there were a few slammed doors. Uh, in the writing process in particular, um, it, it seemed to be... That happened with The Wire as well, Michael, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things we realised is that the word toddler was a difficult word because we all had a completely different impression of what that was. And and how things happen in families, yeah. we all had our own ideas about what that was. You know, there's an episode where um, Bing goes into Paget's shop, it's called Mine, and he just takes out a lolly and licks it and then Flop says, come on, Bing, and he puts it in his pocket and walks out. And then they're walking up the street and he starts, and Flop says, where'd you get that Bing? Oh, I get Paget's shop. He said, okay, did, did we buy that? Uh, oh, no. Oh, Bing, that's called stealing. Oh, I didn't mean to do stealing. Hmm. Should we go back and talk to Paget about this? No. <laughs> so relatable. I'm sorry, Paget. I didn't mean to do stealing. And she said, oh, it's very good of you to come back, Bing. Didn't he give her his biscuit or his cake or well, something? That's the point of the story. Basically, he has a carroty muffin and he says, and I can give you my carroty muffin. So there was a there was a whole bunch of debate with the people, the punishers on one side of the table say, yes, he should give back the muffin and never get it. And he should be punished. And another group saying, Oh, hang on. He's given up his lolly. He did pay for the muffin. He's maybe he's suffered enough. But you, what you people bring their own yeah. values, their own baggage. I had a situation with a great aunt and a, and a Snickers bar once. I'm not, I'm not going to get into it now, but yeah, <laughs> I appreciate different points of view on that. Because I, I think what you- over time you build up trust and you get to know who you all are. And it, but it takes time. It's, there's a bit of grumpiness at the beginning. I wonder whether the cognitive sort of development stuff, did it, does it act in some ways as kind of guardrails on the storytelling uh, for people that, uh, for, maybe for writers, because sometimes I don't know if um, it's a kind of a wide, you cast your net out wide for the writers and there are some people that come to it without a lot of preschool experience. But I sometimes wonder whether, if that is the case, whether the cognitive development stuff can almost be quite a useful guardrail for, for newer writers in preschool. I think preschool is a is a specialist area. Not everybody has experience in it, and not everybody appreciates what that audience needs. So preschool experience really helps. The other thing is that some writers just don't want to be mucked about with, and they want to write on their own, and that's that's why they started doing it. Other writers absolutely thrive on a team process and love it and find, you know, filmmaking is a social activity, at, you know, at best. And so... It's not for everyone, and it is really for some people. And so I think in terms of the the child development aspects of Bing, um, it's interesting because by the, by the time you get to Bing episode, we've gone through the idea, four beat sheets, four drafts, a radio play, the voice record, uh, and then we've gone through one, two, three animatics. Then we've gone through an offline and online. You're 25 iterations in by the time you get to an episode. And the episode appears to be very simple, quite straightforward. There's, in terms of plot, not a lot happens because the, the narrative in Bing is an emotional narrative. It's about, I want to do something, I want to get something, I want to go somewhere. And it, I get, 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 and uh-oh, and oh, might be a bit loud out there, Bing. <clears throat> oh, the ears are down. There's a simple structure to our narrative. Um, 
But we've all learned, I think, as a team, the developmental underpinnings of how to tell these stories. And in the early stages, we kept finding ourselves brain slipping into an adult POV as we were writing to tell them. And now I think we're quite good at remaining in a child POV and telling them in the right way. So, and, and are there kind of, would there be, you know, three or four clear kind of takeaways that you'd be able to uh, describe in terms of how you would approach a preschool show with that cognitive development mindset? Yes. Well, first, I mean, I think it all comes to do, it all comes back to the audience. So young children are born with a brain that's already 50% adult size with 85 billion neurons in it. But the synaptic complexity of those neurons is quite limited. Uh, and then they begin to develop and they develop immensely rapidly. Uh, if you think of language, you know, six months they're babbling, nine to 12 months they're on single words, 13, 15 months they're on double words, 18 months they're on compound sentences. By the time they're three, they can express themselves with some mastery albeit with um, mistakes and clunks. And you think of their, their gross motor skills, their fine motor skills, their hearing, their vision. It's, it's an extraordinary miracle what happens between zero and three. And there's a developmental opportunity there. If the parenting or if the nurturing is just good enough, you literally set them up for life. I think the most important thing, the simplest takeaway is that one of the strongest uh, developmental forces for young children is language acquisition. It literally grows their cognition and their brains and their ability to describe their world, to have agency, to remember, uh, to know what their feelings are and to label them. I mean, it's, it's really everything. The equipment that they use for that is story. And the, in, the, the most important thing is that if you think of, think of Peppa and Bluey and think of Bing, Peppa and Bluey are a bit older and they're comedies. And by the time a child gets to five, six, seven, eight, they're like many adults and they want novelty. They want new. And so, but if you're talking about 18 months to two and a half, three, what they absolutely thrive on is repetition. Again, again. So if you've ever had a two-year-old with a book or a three-year-old with a favorite book or a show or a, again, again, again. And for them, and it's a counterintuitive truth, I think, for us as adults that watching a Bing episode for a 150th time is better for them than the first time because they know what's coming. I know this bit, you know, I <laughs> don't miss anything out if they're reading a book. So there's a Darwinian impulse to grow their, their character, their personality, their cognition, their, their, their mastery, their apparatus. And so I think we've, by trial and error, learned how to tell stories that uniquely meet their needs. And now... 15 years in, we've learned a lot and we can inculcate that with our new writers or our new, our new partners. Uh, but we didn't, I mean, I, none of us are child e development experts, apart from the ones that we have on our team. We've just developed a bit of understanding about it. Yeah, yeah. No, and you do your, like, yeah, you do your best. And, but it, it's, it, it's such a special audience it's 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 some it's some it's an audience that takes a lot of care i mean there's plenty of services in the world who don't even try to cater to audiences younger than four or five you know and and you know that i think content you know and arguably that's left a gap for other people to cater there that in in ways that maybe aren't so wholesome 
Um, and so Bing, Bing does a massive job there, for sure. I think that's good. Uh, there's a profound change happening right now. One of the reasons why there's a bit of a, a neglect for the under four-year-old, the, early, the younger preschool area, is that many of the platforms, commercial platforms, were advertiser-funded. Yeah. And it was difficult to fund shows that you, because you can advertise to younger children. That's here's why that's going to change. Okay. 70% of all revenues from the subscription arena, all on-demand platforms will come from Gen X, Gen Z, and Gen Y parents. And they are the people that have very young children. And if the big strategic challenge for those platforms is customer acquisition and churn, if your young young child has a relationship with Bing, you're just not going to save $9.99 a month. Whereas uh, once you get into the older categories of programming, once the box set is over, you're more likely to rest the subscription for nine months until another episode comes along. So there's already strong signs that younger preschool is being seen for what it really is, which is as valuable in the home as primetime drama. Honestly, Michael, I'm like preaching to the converted here. And I think I'd love, you know, I know there's like a crisis happening in with Australian commissioning, you know, the Australian kids media budgets. There's a crisis happening in the UK, young, young audience content fund, etc. And I actually feel like doing a real piece of work to show the value of that younger audience within the context of a broad four quadrant streamer is one of the ways of uh, one of the ways to I really agree with you Emily and I think that's that's one of the things we're beginning to evangelize about a bit I mean the the BBC issued a press release in 2020 and they showed the top 10 shows the top 10 downloads on the BBC iPlayer nationally across all genres and it was uh, normal people killing Eve Bing fireworks (laughs) which is which is crazy right who would have ever thought but that's not crazy to us because we know how much that audience thrives on repetition. And Yeah, and you know the, the power of unlocking them. Actually, I wrote recently about the, your direct-to-consumer app, um, you know, the fact that you guys have taken, like, you've taken the IP directly to the consumer and you have that direct relationship because you can depend on it. There's a few other there's a few other preschool apps do, or preschool services doing that, which I think is interesting. But, you know, you, you guys have the proof of your own, of you know, of the value because you're seeing the churn rates in your own, in your own, in your own uh, system exactly as well. Right. Yeah. There's, there's an important thing to say about this audience, which is, in my opinion, they're the most discerning audience on the planet. A three-year-old will not sit back and, you know, suck back a pizza on the, on the sofa while they're watching something they don't really like. That's us that, that do that. If a three-year-old's not fully engaged and emotionally connected to what they're watching, they're physically up and off and they're doing something or watching something else. They're, they are elite consumers of story. And once you meet their needs, they are unbelievably loyal as an audience, but they're not an easy audience to cater for. But needs, but also wants though, right? Because there is content there that's maybe question how it meets needs of say language development but wants of you know fast cut rates and you know particular aesthetic on screen etc and we see that it does that so I don't know it's a hard it, I, I hear what you're saying because you can't make a three-year-old watch something he doesn't want to watch like I've tried it I've tried, like I, I have a four and a half year old he went to a bing phase he hates bluey I, I can't get him into bluey <laughs> do my best <laughs> I have to watch that on my own time 
But uh, I, love, I love blue. I think it's very funny. No, so do I. So it's grand. I'll watch it at you know half nine at night with a glass of wine. That's that's fine. But uh... <laughs> no, no, but you can you can. I mean, here's the thing, right? Twenty years ago, all the power was with commissioners and programmers in terrestrial broadcasters. They decided we were watching Morecambe and Wise on a Sunday night. Yeah. Now, the power has shifted irrevocably. It's never going back, and every single person is weaponized with one of these. Yeah. And you can That's get a nine well phone for our listeners. <laughs> nine, 9 billion pieces of content. Yeah. Uh, on this device. And so the power is now with the audience to pull something off the shelf rather than to have a big legacy platform pushing it across the shelf. And I think again that's about when I say meeting their needs, I mean delicious stories that delight them, that keep them engaged that are paced properly for them, that that reflect their reality on screen. Um, if you get that right, they can be incredibly yeah. loyal. But I think that's that's you, that's the sweet spot, right? That's their wants and their needs, right? And that's and and that's what the kind of content that I think people who care about this industry want to make and want to see more of, you know. Um, so like, yeah, that till the cows come home. But yeah, it's just you know, it's um, it's trying to get get that balance I think you know or, or ideally have even if have it skewed more to what what what's what's wholesome you know do you think that um sometimes some of the the broadcasters and the platforms in terms of the way particularly with streaming content that their approach is geared towards an older audience but they're uh, but that younger audience that you're talking about has different viewing habits they have different ways of engaging with that content that aren't necessarily kind of recognized or factored in to the way that content is served to that audience. Yes. I mean, I think, I think that the younger preschool audience is definably a different audience to the older preschool audience. They do, they're cognitively different. They've got different equipment. They've got different needs. And if you look at some of, to talk about some of the other programs in this space, if you look at in the night garden, which is so beautiful and so well done, um, uh, there's and, and almost everything that Ragdoll did was very audience audience focused and audience centric. It's no accident, I think, that the that uh, Andy Davenport and um, you know the the team there worked with young children to test a lot of their developmental ideas along. So they've got stuff that they've got material that stood the test of time through many hits for that young audience. That's a different proposition to some of the older scripted comedic uh, content. I think that the public, I think we're incredibly fortunate to have the BBC in the UK because it's an outlier in terms of accomplishment. And there are, other, there are some other territories. We work with Rye in Italy. We work with ABC in Australia. You know, we do, we do have relationships with other public service broadcasters. But as soon as you're in the commercial realm, I think it is difficult for those platforms historically to have put a lot of funding into programming for very young children because how do they monetize it and how do they get advertising revenue against it? I, I actually think the subscription model will is already changing that. Look at YouTube, which and, and YouTube is not perfect. There are lots of issues with YouTube, but if you look if you let the audience vote with their feet, the young preschool audience becomes quite a loud voice in terms of what what content rises to the top of the of the hit parade you know 
right now we have 25 YouTube channels and on a good day we have one and a half million hours of viewing every day. That's younger preschool content with being localized into 33 different languages. That's a phenomenon that we couldn't really have talked about even 15 years ago, you know. Yeah, and, and how... That's the answer to a, a simpler question. But, but how does that... Uh, how do you get over the fact that um, on, say, like on YouTube, for example, that the... The kids aren't just kind of that audience isn't just gravitating to something that's very kind of sugary and potentially not particularly kind of good for their brain candy floss. Yes. Uh, how how do you kind of work against that within that environment? I think I think in a competitive environment, all you have to do is pay attention to what you're doing. What stories are you telling the audience? How much value do you build into them? What's the pace of them? We're not finding that we're being swamped by all the other content. We're, I say, we've got one and a half million hours of viewing a day. Engagement on all of our channels is growing year on year, uh, even in, in all of our existing channels. The compound annual growth rate for our channels is about 50 to 90% in Western Europe, 400% in Eastern Europe, and about 900% in Southeast Asia. And that's doing what we do, telling our types of stories and paste. I, I think that the audience will find it if you if you do work of of you know skillfully with, with of good quality. Totally, I guess the the challenge then is like getting new work like that funded. You know, if you've got it, you know, we've got established brands. You know, like Bing is as I said turning ten next year, um, but it's where, where where is the next new thing coming from? It's, it's, there there is there is avenues. Obviously, Bluey is Bluey's not even that young anymore like Louis is like five six years old I was looking at that yes. recently um Gabby is 2020 so she's turning four on yeah. you know in January like so yeah I kind of it's trying to find those avenues where good good quality content that has value both from a cognitive point of view and an entertainment point of view and a connection point of view I've got one thought about that because I, I do agree right. with you I think you're right I think it's more difficult to get new projects up off the ground now mm than it was. Why? Because the world is so complex. And also, all of the larger channels are under unique pressures that, you know, they're, they're being, their share has been, reach is being eroded. Most of the public service broadcasters are under funding pressures. Many of the smaller digital channels are, are, are still not, they, they don't have enough traction to put much money into content. And some of the bigger ones will pay for your content but they'll own everything and you'll end up doing work for hire. So how do you navigate that? One of one idea, and I've talked to Greg at the CMC about this, is that we ought to think about what it takes to be a producer now. And my view of that is that in order to be a producer, if you were, if you were brought up in Los Angeles and you worked in the movie industry, you would think that, or, or even network television, to be a producer, you'd want to be able to think strategically, acquire rights strategically, put together a financing plan, negotiate skillfully, know about marketing and trademarks. You'd then want, you'd know how to at least supervise if you can't read a script or script, edit or write, direct, produce, think about music, think, and then you want to think about launch plans. And in our category, books, licensed products, events. Ten years later. No, there's a, 
there's a parabola of different areas of expertise in there. And I think if you go back 20, 30 years, if you worked in children's television at the BBC, you were really tightly demarcated. You know, I'm a producer, I'm a director, I'm a floor manager, I'm or I work in BBC Books or I work in VHS cassettes or, you know. But I think now there's no reason at all why we can't take creative producers and train them and give them skills across that mix because I think they're going to need them. I, I, I also don't, this orthodoxy that you've got creative people and you've got commercial people, I've always thought that was rubbish. I think there's loads of really talented creative marketing people and salespeople and finance people. And there's loads of really organized, thoughtful creatives and producers who run things very tightly. So I, I, I think we ought to think about what we need to equip and and that we, we, we should be tearing down some of the walls about what a creative person is and what a commercial person is and building young, you know, entrepreneurial creatives yep. can work across all of these because the world isn't going back to the way it was. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of really... That's a crucial example of how things have changed. And maybe, I mean, the BBC is amazing, but maybe part of the BBC kind of encourages a mindset that thinks there that that tends to have those things where you're in that department and maybe maybe you're not thinking so much about how you navigate the wider market. It does. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, in back in the day when the BBC had 85% reach and didn't have any competition. I think that structure was of its time, and it, it it served it served one purpose really well, which is building really deep craft skills, particularly in the technical and production areas. But that that doesn't exist, and that is not the future. And I think the future needs ideally, if you've got a young person coming up, you want them to be adept at pitching an idea, persuading people, negotiating, and if they don't have the skills to negotiate, think of their source rights, also plan a strategy, think of trademarks, think of marketing, at least the skills to know, oh, I've got a gap there. I need to fill that somehow. Uh, whilst also not um, sacrificing the long-term creative potential of the show, because at the end of the day, that's, the, that's what you're serving. Uh, everything we did in the early stages in terms of working capital and our strategy was about allowing us to build a very high quality production autonomously without having to sell our rights to a big organization. That that took a lot of forethought. And we were all quite experienced by the time they did it. But how do you help a 20, 25-year-old develop that mindset? I think I think there's it's an interest. It's not just the mindset though, Michael, because you know, the credibility that you guys would have brought as experienced, you know producers and television practitioners would give people give people the, the confidence to put their money in their pocket you know I think that's yes. the, the issue facing a lot of producers that I speak to the, these days is you know the service work is is the bread and butter right it keeps the lights on it keeps people's bills paid and and then yep. it's hard to kind of find the time to and the discipline when you've got the your best idea to hold out on it because you're turning down a green light you know what I mean? Yeah. They're turning down a green light in that sense. And, and, and you know, there's that service work model. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of experience to be gained from that. You know, that's a great way for people to kind of learn the realities of it. But, um, you know, it, it, it then just becomes a bit of a consuming beast because, you know, you just you need to get your next meal on the table. You know, like you can't just opt out of the production, you know, 
update of, a, of, of having a production in the pipeline, you know? So finding that kind of, that icing to just give a bit of time to, you know, the best idea is, is, is as I said, it takes discipline and that's hard. I think there are some really good studios, but there are far and few between who manage to do really high quality mm-hmm. service work and save enough brain space and capacity yeah. Yeah. also develop their own IP. It's very um, difficult. It's very, very difficult. And the danger is you get sucked into overcommitting to your uh, your service work because you're a creative being and you can't really avoid that. Yeah. yeah. And then you end up, you know, having a breathless moment where you've got big overhead, you've got nothing else happening, and you have to scamper to get another piece of work in. And one yeah, of the challenges of that is you end up working on projects where there's a breathlessness to it because you you have to keep busy. And I, th- I think actually the way the world is going is all is much, much more about being thoughtful about what the project is to begin with, what you can do with it conceptually. Which, when we picked up the rights to Bing, we looked at 600 projects, 600 IP, and we wow. picked up one, which again yeah, I mean, takes time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes with the service provider thing, you can end up finding that you're, you're working to kind of chase that payroll and... And, and actually, there isn't the space to really develop your own stuff internally. I mean, I, I think for young producers, I'm still surprised that when I meet some young producers that don't fully have stuff like the chain of title um, and some of the basics really kind of established. So they may get into a situation where the conversations have gone so far down where everything's been agreed in good faith and then they get a bit unstuck with the project and i think some of those basics would really equip producers starting out in a way that would yeah they they wouldn't make mistakes that they'd kind of regret later on i think yes i think that's true i mean we're we're thinking a lot about this i'm talking to greg about it we we've we run a training course for our own uh young staff members um, and there are opportunities uh, to think about some of the things I'm describing, negotiation skills, um, uh, presentation skills, some of the things that just help you get a creative idea across the threshold. Um, but I think there's an interesting conversation about what is a producer now? What is a creative person now? Yeah. And maybe, maybe we can widen that. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely room to future-proof that's uh, that role really in the way that we think about it yes um yeah that's exciting um one just to bring us back to the cognitive development as a way to kind of wrap up the conversation yes um would there is there anything that you think uh, preschool really gets right in that area and where do you think um there's scope for kind of it to be developed further in terms of the way people think about really embedding uh, cognitive development in, into a show I think that um, I think it's difficult not to feel positive about CBBs and and everything they're doing. I, th- I think they're running it, but they're they're in a fortunate position, even though they're under pressure. But they're doing some fantastic programming uh, across a wide range of very thoughtful areas to do with numeracy and and inclusivity language skills um i think, and I think reddit, we, reddit agrees with you on that one michael have you heard the story of 
the flaming Reddit thread about the BBC license fee and oh, BBC license fee, blah, blah. and then somebody just goes, "Yeah, but CBBC is good," and everybody agreed. Yes. <laughs> the internet agreed on something. <laughs> yes, wow, that's the first. So I, th- I think that's true, and that shows that it can be done, but that has a particular structure, a particular funding model, and all the rest of it. Um, I actually think that. Uh, I, I think there's a whole range of new offerings that are coming through social channels with crazy entrepreneurial people in their kitchens coming up with ideas that catch fire with the audience. And I think it's easy to be sniffy about that because it's not professionally produced or it's not done for a broadcast model. But why not? I mean, I mean if, if one of the things digital technology does is it creates wider access, I think there are... Cr- creative and talented people doing narrower simpler things for the audience and gaining uh, huge audiences I mean huge audiences somebody was telling me earlier on about somebody who has a, a social channel and all they do is drawing but right. on, the, on the back of the drawing they're getting 20 to 30 million views a month just wow. drawing, drawing things for young children I think there's a there's I, the other thing is we're only at the beginning right yeah Steve Jobs held up the, and finally, the iPhone in 2007. That was also kind of the tipping point year for Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google. It's not been that long. And I, and I think we're still seeing the unraveling of loss of share for the big legacy incumbents. I think the, the, the streamers are still trying to work out an industrial model for how they fund their content and what they're doing. There's a vast range of small ideas and things. And- coming through, so I think it's, it's very exciting, actually. There's a lot happening. And, and what's your advice for kind of program makers that want to kind of navigate their position from kind of streaming platforms, but also maybe operate on YouTube and kind of uh, and have their own app and want to have something kind of one-to-one direct engagement with consumers? Is, are there any kind of tips in terms of how you kind of navigate and and manage those two areas well clearly access is much easier now but the problem with access is the statistics about how much is getting uploaded every minute is overwhelming so i think you need some form of thoughtful approach that's going to help you to cut through all the noise if you're talking about narrative-based content for any audience but particularly young children uh, it com- the, the, the really key uh, com- value creation is in writing. And I, I don't think you need vast budgets to come up with good writing. I think you need, you, but you know, like in anything else, most good creative work does cost money. So it depends on what stage you're at. If you're very, very young and you're just starting your career, my advice would be to get into any organization whose work you admire and see what you can learn and do, you know, I took a massive pay cut to go to the BBC to get my first job there. And that, that was just the way it was. I think get in and learn and absorb as much information as you can. If you're a later, you know, you've got a bit more experience, you've got an idea. I think funding is important and there are now loads of ways of raising funding speculatively to produce decent content. The government's EIS scheme and SEIS scheme in the UK are cases in point. 
uh, we raised about half a million pounds on EIS in the first um, four years of putting together our piloting materials on Bing. That allowed us to do high quality work with decent talent. And I, I don't think you need to have massive years of a track record to, to do that. It's hard to do it, but you know everything's hard. Choose your hard. Do you want it to be hard to set up professionally to do high quality writing and to make sure you whatever your early stage piloting and production design is is attractive and competitive, or do you want it to be hard because you endlessly iterate ideas, none of which get any traction? They're all hard. Um, you know, doing one project for you know more than fifteen years now is hard, but we've chosen that because we believe in it and we believe we're doing we're building a a, a relationship with an audience globally and there are there are real rewards to that you know we're building something valuable so i think get, get some funding and do it to the best standard you possibly can learn as much as you can attach yourself to any organization that has is doing work you admire network i mean I, I, this is a whole other podcast of conversation. <laughs> how do you how do you thrive in get skills and get into the industry. I think it's something for CMC for us to think more about. That's all called Greg. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've already talked to him about it, actually. That, I and think he's very receptive, actually. He's open to this. He can see that there's a need, I think. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think there definitely is a need for that. That's really exciting. I think a fantastic kind of place to, to end it. So thanks very much for, for the chat, Michael. It's been Thank really, you both very much. You've been a very good company, and I hope that's uh, well, a helpful insight to Bing, at least. Oh, it's been great. Yeah, awesome. Really. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for joining us for another episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Thanks again.